0: Twenty-two, and ye that the intense cold congealed their breath and froze their beards together. I left them as they were endeavouring to arrange a separation. A few beggars circulated in the crowd and gathered here and there a copeck. The frost whitened the beards of the men and reddened the cheeks of the women. Where hands were bared to the breeze, they were of a corn beefy hue. And there were many persons stamping on the ground or swinging their arms to keep up a circulation. The little horses, standing, were white with frost but none of them covered with blankets. The Siberian horses are not blanketed in winter, but I was told they did not suffer from cold. Their coats are thick and warm and frequently appear more like fur than hair. Everything that could be frozen had succumbed to the frost. There were frozen chickens, partridges, and other game, thrown in heaps like bricks or stove wood, beef, pork, and mutton, were like solid, and some of the vendors had placed their animals in fantastic positions before freezing them. In one place I saw a calf standing as if ready to walk away. His skin remained, and at first sight I thought him alive, but was undeceived when a man overturned the unresisting beast. Frozen fish were piled carelessly in various places, and milk was offered for sale in cakes or bricks. A stick or string was generally frozen into a corner of the mess to facilitate carrying. One could swing a quart of milk at his side or wrap it in his kerchief at discretion. There were many peripatetic dealers in cakes and tea, the latter carrying small kettles of the hot beverage, which they served in tumblers. Occasionally there was a man with a whole litter of sucking pigs frozen solid and slung over his shoulder or festooned into a necklace. The diminutive size of these pigs awakened reflections upon the brevity of swinish life. Chapter X X X V custom is the same at Irkutsk as in all fashionable society of the empire. Visits of ceremony are made in full dress uniform for an officer and evening costume for a civilian. Ceremonious calls are pretty short, depending of course upon the position and intimacy of the parties. The Russians are very punctilious in making and receiving visits. So many circumstances are to be considered that I was always in dread of making a mistake of etiquette somewhere. Nearly all my acquaintances in Irkutsk spoke French or English, though comparatively few conversed with me in the latter tongue. The facility with which the Russians acquire language has been often remarked. Almost all Russians who possess any education are familiar with at least one language beside their own. Very often I found a person conversant with two foreign languages, and it was no unusual thing to find one speaking three. I knew a young officer at Irkutsk who spoke German, French, English, and swedish, and had a very fair smattering of chinese, manger, and japanese, The young lady there conversed well and charmingly in english, french, and german and knew something of italian, it was more the exception in the rule that i met an officer with whom i could not converse in french, french is the society language of the russian capital, and one of the first requisites in education, children are instructed almost from infancy, governesses are generally french or english, and conversation with their charges is rarely conducted in Russian. Tutors are generally Germans familiar with French. There is no other country in the world where those who can afford it are so attentive to the education of their children. This attention added to the peculiar temperament of the Russians makes them the best linguists in the world. An English gentleman and lady, the latter speaking Russian fluently, lived in Siberia several years. During their sojourn, a son was born to them. It was a long time before he began talking. So long, in fact, that his parents feared he would be dumb. When he commenced, he was very soon fluent in both English and Russian. His long hesitation was doubtless caused by the confusion of two languages. The present emperor is an accomplished linguist, but no exception in this particular to the imperial family in general. The queen of Greece, a niece of the emperor of Russia, is said to be very prompt to learn a new language whenever it comes in her way. And when she was selected for that royal position, she conquered the Greek language in a very short time. French is the leading foreign language among the Russians, and the second rank is held by the German. Of late years, English has become very popular, and is being rapidly acquired. The present entente cordiale between Russia and the United States is exerting an influence for the increased study of our language. Why should we not return the compliment and bestow a little attention upon the Slavonic tongue? Most persons in society at Irkutsk were from European Russia or had spent some time in Moscow at St. Petersburg. Of the native-born Siberians there were a few who had not made a journey beyond the Ural Mountains. Among the officials, St. Petersburg was usually the authority in the matter of life and habit. While the civilians turned their eyes toward Moscow, society in Irkutsk was not less polished than in the capitals and it possessed the advantage of being somewhat more open and less rigid than under the shadow of the imperial palace. Etiquette is etiquette in any part of the empire, and its forms must everywhere be observed. But after the social forms were complied, with there was less stiffness than in European Russia. Some travelers declare that they found Siberian society more polished than that of old Russia. On this point I cannot speak personally as my stay in the western part of the empire was too brief to afford much insight into its life. There may be some truth in the statement. Siberia has received a great many individuals of high culture in the persons of its political exiles. Men of liberal education, active intellects, and refined manners have been in large proportion among the banished Poles. And the exiles of 1825 included many of Russia's ablest minds. The influence of these exiles upon the intelligence, habits, and manners of the Siberians, has left an indelible mark, as a new civilization is more plastic than an old one, so the society of northern Asia may have become more polished than that of ancient Russia, I could order of only six of my countrymen who had been at Irkutsk before me, of these all but to pass through the city with little delay, and were seen by very few persons, I happened to reach Siberia when our ironclad fleet was at Kronstadt and its officers were being feasted at St. Petersburg and elsewhere. The Siberians regretted that Mr. Fox and his companions could not visit them, and experience their hospitality. So they determined to expend their enthusiasm on the first American that appeared, and rather unexpectedly I became the recipient of the will of the Siberians toward the United States. Two days after my arrival I was visited by Mr. Hamanov, one of the wealthiest merchants of Irkutsk, as he spoke only Russian. He was accompanied by my late fellow traveler who came to interpret between us and open the conversation with Mr. Hammond presents his compliments and wishes you to dine with him day after tomorrow. I accepted the invitation, and the merchant departed. Mock informed me that the dinner would be a ceremonious one, attended by the governor-general and leading officials. About forty persons were to present, and seated according to rank, the tables were to set on three sides of a square apartment the post of honour being in the central position facing the middle of the room, the dinner was served in the French manner, and but for the language and uniforms around me, and a few articles in the bill of fare, I could have thought myself in a private parlour of the Trois Frères or the Café Anglais. Madame Ditmar, the wife of the governor of the Trans-Baikal, was the only lady present. When the champagne appeared, Mr. Hamanoff proposed the United States of America and prefaced his toast with a little speech to his Russian guests. I proposed the health of the emperor, and then the toasts became irregular and applied to the governor-general, the master of the house, the ladies of Siberia, the Russo-American telegraph, and various other persons, objects, and enterprises. From the dinner table we adjourned to the parlors where tea and coffee were brought, and most of the guests were very soon busy at the card tables, on reaching my room late at night. I found a Russian document awaiting me, and with effort and a dictionary, I translated it into an invitation to an official dinner with General Korsakov, five minutes before the appointed hour I accompanied a friend to the Governor-General's house. As we entered, servants in military garb took our shabas, and we were ushered into a large parlor. General Korsakov and many of the invited guests were assembled in the parlor, and within two minutes the entire party had gathered. As the clock struck five the doors were thrown open, and the general led the way to the dining hall. I found at Irkutsk great precision respecting appointments. When dinners were to come off at a fixed hour all the guests assembled from three to ten minutes before the time specified. I never knew anyone to come late, and all were equally careful not to come early. No one could be more punctual than General Korsakov, and his example was no doubt carefully watched and followed. It is a rule throughout official circles in Russia. If I am correctly informed, that tardiness implies disrespect, Americans might take a few lessons of the Russians on the subject of punctuality. The table was liberally decorated with flowers and plants, and the whole surroundings were calculated to make one forget that he was in cold and desolate Siberia. A band of music was stationed in the adjoining parlor, and furnished us with Russian and American airs. At the first toast General Korsakov made a speech in Russian, recounting the amity existing between the two nations and the visit of our special embassy to congratulate the Emperor on his escape from assassination. He thought the Siberians felt no less grateful at this mark of sympathy than did the people of European Russia, and closed by proposing, the President, Congress, and people of the United States. The toast was received with enthusiasm, the band playing Yankee Doodle as an accompaniment to the cheering, The speech was translated to me by Captain Lyndon, the private secretary of the Governor-General, who spoke French and English fluently. Etiquette required me to follow with a toast to the Emperor in my little speech. I spoke slowly to facilitate the hearing of those who understood English. The Captain then translated it into a Russian. General Korsakov spoke about four minutes, and I think my response was of the same length. Both speeches were considered quite elaborate by the Siberians and one officer declared it was the longest dinner-table address the general ever made. Two days later at another dinner I asked a friend to translate my remarks when I came to speak. He asked how long I proposed talking. About three minutes, was my reply. Oh, said he, you had better make it one or two minutes. You made a long speech at the Governor General's, and when you dine with a person of less importance he will not expect you to speak as much. I had not taken this view of the matter. As the American custom tends to brevity on the ascending rather than on the descending scale. Ten years earlier Major Collins dined with General Beef in the same hall where I was entertained. After dinner I heard a story at the expense of my enterprising predecessor. It is well known that the Major is quite a speech maker at home. And when he is awakened on a favorite subject he has no lack either of ideas or words. On the occasion just mentioned, General Moraveef gave the toast. Russia and America. Major Collins rose to reply and after speaking six or eight minutes came to a pause. Captain Martinoff, who understood English, was seated near the Major. As the latter stopped, General Moradif turned to the Captain and asked, Will you be kind enough to translate what has been said? Black Darietti. He thanks you said the Captain. The Major proceeded six or eight minutes more and paused again. Translate. Was the renewed command of the Governor General. He thanks you very much again another period of speech and the address was finished translate if you please the general suggested once more to his aide. he thanks you very much indeed the major was puzzled and turning to captain martinov remarked that the russian language must be very comprehensive when a speech of twenty minutes could be translated in three or four words on days when i was disengaged i dined at the amirsky bastinets or an hotel the hotel comprised two buildings one containing the rooms of lodgers, and the other devoted to restaurant, dining and billiard rooms. In the dining department there were several rooms, a large one for a restaurant and table dote, and the rest for private parties. Considering the general character of Russian hotels the one at Irkutsk was quite credible. In its management, cookery, and service it would compare favorably with the establishments on Cortland Street or Park Row. In the billiard room there were two tables on which I sometimes complied with a request to show the American game. The tables had six pockets each, and as the cues had no leather tips, there was an unpleasant clicking whenever they were used. The Russian game of billiards is played with five balls, and the science consists in pocketing the balls. The carom does not count. The first time I dined at the hotel the two candles burned inly, and we called for a third. When it was brought the servant drew a small table near us and placed the extra candle upon it. I asked the reason for his doing so. And it was thus explained. There is a superstition in Russia that if three lighted candles are placed upon a table someone in the room will die within a year. Everybody endeavors to avoid such a calamity. If you have two candles and order another, the servant will place the third on a side table or he will bring a fourth and make your number an even one. There was formerly a theater at Irkutsk, but it was burned a few years ago, and has not been rebuilt. During my stay there was a musical concert in the large hall of the officers' club, and a theatrical display was prepared but not concluded before my departure. At the concert a young officer, Captain Lowbury, executed on the piano several pieces of his own composition, and was heartily applauded by the listeners. Once a week there was a social party at the clubhouse where dancing cards, billiards, and small talk continued till after midnight, nearly everyone in society kept open house daily, in most of the families where I was acquainted tea was taken at 8 p.m. and any friend could call at that hour without ceremony, the samovar was placed on the table, and one of the ladies presided over the tea, those who wished it could sit at table, but there was no formal spreading of the cloth, tea was handed about the room and each one took it at his liking. I have seen in these social circles a most pleasing irregularity in tea-drinking. Some were seated on sofas and chairs, holding cups and saucers in their hands or resting them upon tables, others stood in groups of two, three, or more, others were at cards, and sipped their tea at intervals of the games, and a few were gathered around the hostess at the samovar. The time passed in whatever amusements were attainable. There were cards for some and conversation for others with piano music, little dances and general sports of considerable variety, those evenings at Irkutsk were delightful, and I shall always remember them with pleasure, what with visits, dinners, balls, suppers, social evenings, and sleigh rides, I had little time to myself, and though I economized every minute I did not succeed in finishing my letters and journal until the very day before my departure, the evening parties lasted pretty late, they generally closed with a supper toward the wee small hours, and the good nights word are not spoken until about two in the morning. There is a peculiarity about a Russian party, whether a quiet social assemblage or a stately ball, that the whole house is thrown open. In America guests are confined to the parlors and the dancing and supper apartments. From the time they leave the cloaking rooms till they prepare for departure. In Russia they can wander pretty nearly where they please, literally, upstairs, downstairs. Or in my lady's chamber, of course all the rooms are prepared for visitors, but I used at first to feel a shrinking sensation when I sauntered into the private study and work room of my official host, or found myself among the scent bottles and other toilet treasures of a lady acquaintance. This liberal keeping of open house materially assists to break the stiffness of an assemblage though it can hardly be entirely convenient to the hosts, immediately after my entertainment with General Korsakoff. The mayor of Irkutsk invited me to an official dinner at his house. This was followed a few days later by a similar courtesy on the part of Mr. Trepeznikov, the son of a wealthy merchant who died a few years ago. Private dinners followed in rapid succession until I was qualified to speak with practical knowledge of the Irkutsk cuisine. No stranger in a strange land was ever more kindly taken in and no hospitality was ever bestowed with less ostentation. I can join in the general testimony of travelers that the Russians excel in the ability to entertain visitors. Mr. Karteštsov, the mayor, or Molov as he is called, resided in a large house that formerly belonged to Prince Trebekoy, one of the exiles of 1825. My host was an extensive owner of gold mines, and had been very successful in working them. He was greatly interested in the means employed in California for separating gold from earth and especially in the hydraulic process. On my first visit Madame Kartechevsov spoke very little French. She must have submitted her studies to a thorough revision as I found her a week later able to conduct a conversation with ease. There were other instances of a vigorous overhauling of disused French and English that furnished additional proof of the Russian adaptability to foreign tongues. To reach the goal of his house we crossed, the Auskakovka, a small river running through the northern part of Irkutsk, It had been recently frozen, and several rosy-cheeked boys were skating on the ice. The view from the bridge is quite picturesque, and the little valley forms a favorite resort in certain seasons of the year. The water of the Ouskokofka is said to be denser than that of the Angara, and on that account is preferred for culinary purposes. Chapter XXXVI I have made occasional mention of the exiles of 1825, and it may be well to explain how they went to Siberia. In the early part of the present century Russia was not altogether happy. The Emperor Paul, called to the throne by the death of Catherine I.I., did not display marked ability, but, on the contrary, quite the reverse. What his mother had done for the improvement of the country he was inclined to undo. Under his reign great numbers were banished to Siberia upon absurd charges or mere caprice. The Emperor reissued manifestos of a whimsical character one of which was directed against round hats, and another against shoestrings, the glaring colors now used upon bridges, distance posts, watch boxes, and other imperial property, were of his selection, and so numerous were his eccentricities that he was declared of unsound mind, in March, 1801, he was smothered in his palace, which he had just completed, It is said that within an hour after the fact of his death was known round hats appeared on the street in great numbers, Alexander I endeavored to repair some of the evils of his father's reign, he recalled many exiles from Siberia, suppressed the secret inquisition, and restored many rights of which the people had been deprived, his greatest abilities were displayed during the wars with France, after the general peace he devoted himself to inspecting and developing the resources of the country, and was the first. And thus far the only Emperor of Russia to cross the Ural Mountains and visit the mines of that region. His death occurred during a tour through the southern provinces of the empire. Some of his reforms were based upon the principles of other European governments, which he endeavored to study. On his return from England he told his council that the best thing he saw there was the opposition in parliament. He thought it a part of the government machinery and regretted it could not be introduced in Russia. Constantine. The eldest brother of Alexander I had relinquished his right to the crown, thus breaking the regular succession, from the time of Paul a revolutionary party had existed, and once at least it plotted the assassination of Alexander, there was an interregnum of three weeks between the death of Alexander and the assumption of power by his second brother, Nicholas, the change of succession strengthened the revolutionists, and they employed the interregnum to organize a conspiracy for seizing the government. The conspiracy was widespread, and included many of the ablest men of the day. The army was seriously implicated, the revolutionists desired a constitutional government, and their rallying cry of was explained to the soldiers as the name of Constantine's wife. The real design of the movement was not confided to the rank and file, who supposed they were fighting for Constantine and the regular succession of the throne. Nicholas learned of the conspiracy the day before his ascension, the imperial guard of the palace was in the plot, and expected to seize the emperor's person, the guard was removed during the night and a battalion from Finland substituted, it is said that on receiving intelligence of the assembling of the insurgents, the emperor called his wife to the chapel of the palace, where he spent a few moments in prayer, then taking his son, the present emperor, he led him to the soldiers of the new guard confided him to their protection, and departed for Street Isaac Square to suppress the revolt. The soldiers kept the boy until the emperor's return, and would not even surrender him to his tutor. The plot was so widespread that the conspirators had good promise of success, but whole regiments backed out at the last moment and left only a forlorn hope to begin the struggle. Nicholas rode with his officers to Street Isaac's Square, and twice commanded the assembled insurgents to surrender. They refused, and Warder then saluted with the last argument of kings. A storm of great shot, followed by a charge of cavalry, put in flight all who were not killed, and ended the insurrection. A long and searching investigation followed, disclosing all the ramifications of the plot. The conspirators declared they were led to what they undertook by the unfortunate condition of the country and the hope of improving it. Nicholas, concealed behind a screen, heard most of the testimony and confessions and learned it there from a wholesome lesson. The end of the affair was the execution of five principal conspirators and the banishment of many others to Siberia. The five that suffered capital punishment were hanged in front of the Admiralty buildings in St. Petersburg. One rope was broken, and the victim, falling to the ground, suffered such agony that the officer in charge of the execution sent to the Emperor asking what to do. Take a new rope and finish your duty, was the ungodly answer of Nicholas. The accession of Nicholas and the attempted revolt occurred on the 14th December, OS 1825. Within six months from that date the most of the conspirators reached Siberia. They were sent to different districts, some to labor in the mines for specified periods, and others to become colonists. They included some of the ablest men in Russia, and were nearly all young and enterprising. Many of them were married, and were followed into exile by their wives. Though the latter were only permitted to go to Siberia on condition of never returning, each of the exiles was deprived of all civil or political rights, and declared legally dead. His property was confiscated to the crown, and his wife considered a widow and could marry again if she chose. To the credit of the Russian women, not one availed herself of this privilege. I was told that nearly every married exile's family followed him, and some of the unmarried ones were followed by their sisters and mothers. I have previously spoken of the effect of the unfortunates of the 14th December upon the society and manners of Siberia, these men enjoyed good social positions, and their political faults did not prevent their becoming well received, their sentence to labor in the mines was not rigorously enforced, and lasted but two or three years at farthest, they were subsequently employed at indoor work, and, as time wore on and passion subsided, were allowed to select residences in villages. Very soon they were permitted to go to the larger towns, and once there, those whose wives possessed property in their own right built themselves elegant houses and took the position to which their abilities entitled them. General Korsakov told me that when he first went to serve in Siberia there was a ball one evening at the Governor-General's, noticing one man who danced the Mazurka splendidly. He whispered to General Moravieff and asked his name. That, said Moravieff is a revolutionist of 1825, he is one of the best men of society in Irkutsk, after their first few years of exile, the Decembrists had little to complain of except the prohibition to return to Europe, to men whose youth was passed in brilliant society and amid the gaieties of the capital, this life in Siberia was no doubt irksome, year after year went by, and on the 25th anniversary of their banishment they looked for pardon, little else was talked of among them for some weeks, but they were doomed to disappointment, Nicholas had no forgiving disposition, and those who plotted his overthrow were a little likely to obtain favor, even though a quarter of a century had elapsed since their crime. But the death of Nicholas and the coronation of Alexander Ii wrought a change for the exiles, Nicholas began his reign with an act of severity, Alexander followed his ascension with one of clemency, by imperial ukase he pardoned the exiles of 1825 restored them to their civil and political rights, and permitted their return to Europe. As the fathers were illegally dead when sent into exile, the children born to them in Siberia were illegitimate in the eye of the law and could not even bear their own family name. Properly they belonged to the government, and inherited their father's exile in not being permitted to go to Europe. The U.K.S. removed all these disabilities and gave the children full authority to succeed to their father's hereditary titles and social and political rights. These exiles lived in different parts of Siberia, but chiefly in the governments of Irkutsk and Yeniseisk. But the thirty years of the reign of Nicholas were not an eventful. Death removed some of the unfortunates. Others had dwelt so long in Siberia that they did not wish to return to a society where they would be strangers. Some who were unmarried at the time of their exile had acquired families in Siberia, and thus fastened themselves to the country. Not more than half of those living at the time of Alexander's coronation availed themselves of his permission to return to Russia. The princes Trubekoy and Volbonskoy hesitated for some time, but finally concluded to return. Both died in Europe quite recently. Their departure was regretted by many persons in Irkutsk, as their absence was quite a loss to society. I heard some curious reminiscences concerning the prince Volbonskoy. It was said that his wife and children, with the servants, Word are the occupants of the large and elegant house, the prince living in a small building in the courtyard, he had a farm near the town and sold the various crops to his wife. Both the princes paid great attention to educating their children and fitting them for ultimate social position in Europe, while in Irkutsk I saw one of the Decemberists who had grown quite wealthy as a wine merchant, another of these exiles was mentioned, but I did not meet him, another resided at Seleninsk, a third near Verpniudinsk and a fourth near Lake Baikal. There are several at other points, but I believe the whole number of the Decembrists now in Siberia is less than a dozen. Forty-two years have brought them to the brink of the grave, and very soon the active spirits of that unhappy revolt will have passed away. The other political exiles in Siberia are almost entirely Poles. Every insurrection in Poland adds to the population of Asiatic Russia, and accomplishes very little else. The revolt of 1831 was prolific in this particular, and so was that of 1863. Revolutions in Poland have been utterly hopeless of success since the downfall and division of the kingdom, but the Poles remain undaunted. I do not propose entering into a discussion of the Polish question, as it would occupy too much space and be foreign to the object of my book, but I will briefly touch a few points. The Russians and Poles were not inclined to amiability when both had separate governments. Europe has never been converted to Republican principles, and however much the Western powers may sympathize with Poland, they would be unwilling to adopt for themselves the policy they desire for Russia. England holds India and Ireland, regardless of the will of Indians and Irish. France has her African territory which did not ask to be taken under the tricolor, and we are all aware of the relations once held by her emperor toward Mexico. It is much easier to look for generosity and forbearance in others than in ourselves. Those who are disposed to shed tears over the fate of Poland, should remember that the unhappy country has only suffered the fortune of war. When Russia and Poland began to measure swords the latter was the more powerful, and for a time overran a goodly portion of the Muscovite soil. We all know there has been a partition of Poland, but are we equally aware that the Russia of Rurik and Ivan IV? was partitioned in 1612 by the Swedes at Novgorod and the Poles at Moscow. In 1612 the Poles held Moscow. The Russians rose against them in that year, just as the Poles have since risen against the Russians, but with a different result. The Polish exiles of 1881 and previous years were pardoned by the same ukase that liberated the Russian exiles of 1825. Just before the insurrection of 1863 there were not many Poles in Siberia, except those who remained of their own.